You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Jack Lewis. And I'm Jean Herb, Youth Radio Correspondent. You're listening to the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, April 26, 2023. Later in the program, we have Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, rent me a car, baby, on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more. More following today's feature, but first, the latest episode of Deep Dive. This is Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. We are looking into the opioid settlement fund and how the money will be distributed. In response to the opioid crisis, state and local governments across the country sued the pharmaceutical companies in charge of making and distributing opioids and held them accountable for the lives they have impacted. This is according to Indiana's Attorney General's Office. Over the last two years, the national opioid settlement of $26 billion has been reached. The first settlement comes from opioid distributors McKenson, Cardinal Health, and Amerisource Virgin, and opioid manufacturer Janssen Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and its parent company Johnson & Johnson. Three opioid distributors will pay $21 billion over the course of 18 years. Johnson & Johnson will pay up to $5 billion over the span of nine years. Indiana will receive $507 million from the settlement. The city of Bloomington will receive about $2 million. Monroe County will receive $2.6 million over the course of 18 years. We talked to the executive director of Indiana's Next Level Recovery Program, Douglas Hunsinger, about the state's response to the opioid crisis and how they plan to use the settlement money to address it. First, Hunsinger explained what the Next Level Recovery Program is and what his role is as executive director. I lead the initiative um, as the executive director for drug prevention, treatment, and enforcement, uh, and oversee all of our state agencies' response, um, but also our, our private po- uh, private partners, uh, our providers, uh, and and work to ensure that we're all uh, in alignment uh, moving forward uh, in our overall goals. Huntinger explained how their current programming is being funded and how the settlement money can be used to fill in any gaps they have in their programming. So we have four you know, high-level outcome and impacting indicators that, that we use to measure our efforts. Uh, and I think as we look at um, you know, the number of hospital discharges that involve an overdose, um, overdose fatalities, you know, and, and as the epidemic started with um, opioid prescription rates. We, we tracked those. And then also the number of babies born with um, neonatal abstinence syndrome are, are all our key high level indicators. So I think if you look at, um, you know, our efforts around, for example, overdose fatality, you know, we've worked hard to one, ensure that naloxone is available. You know, we've distributed uh, since 2020 over 320,000 doses of naloxone, which uh, we're currently uh, distributing about 19,000 doses of naloxone 
every month through our partnership with um, Overdose Lifeline. We have 430 lock boxes, 19 vending machines, uh, and 200 grassroots uh, organizations that help distribute that naloxone. And that's also complemented by our efforts uh, at the Department of Health to provide naloxone to our health departments and our um, first responder agencies. Uh, so really making sure that um, our goal is to, to make sure that individuals um, who are who need and are going to use naloxone have it uh, in that moment. Hunsinger walked us through how the settlement funds are distributed, starting from the top at a national level to the state of Indiana and down to our local government. Yeah, so our current funding sources are, um, are, are from a number of different areas. So the largest funding source is from Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration, which is a division of um, Health and Human Services at the federal level, uh, which comes to the Family and Social Services Administration's Division of Mental Health and Addiction here in Indiana. So DMHA is tasked with distributing those dollars, and they're a really important partner of ours as we talk about um, treatment and recovery supports. We have some funding from the Center for Disease Control through the Department of Health, which um, helps with harm reduction and um, naloxone um, distribution, some other surveillance and data collection programs. And then um, we also receive state funding through the, the general fund and from uh, some other um, sources that we've taken a, an approach here in Indiana uh, where we look at how we can braid these funding sources together and and provide a sustainable fund for the activities that, that we're funding. So, for example, our jail treatment um, program, when we first started up, uh, the, the um, funding from SAMHSA was opioid only. And we know in many of our jails and, and many of our counties across the, the state, uh, methamphetamines continue to be the, um, the number one used substance in these areas. So that created a gap. And so we supplemented with some funding from um, our office to ensure that we created a program that was focused on substance use disorder, not the substance. Uh, and that's been another focus of ours is ensuring that regardless of what substance you're on, what funding streams or what payer source you may have, that we're creating um, pathways for individuals and sustainability for these programs so that we're, we're not um, leaving individuals out uh, as we build our infrastructure. That's a, that's a little bit, when, when we talk about, you know, the, the opioid settlement funds that, um, that we're using kind of in the same way, we're looking at where are our current gaps, how can we braid this funding into help provide greater sustainability um, over, you know, over more years. This funding is um, much more predictable than um, federal funds or state funds, which are on a two-year budget cycle. So this really allows for us to, um, to plan, um, you know, out for the, for the next 10, um, 15 years as we look at um, how we're developing programs and the evolution uh, of our infrastructure here in Indiana. So to paraphrase that, Indiana joined a national settlement and received $507 million. They then split that in half. The state keeps half and then local government entities, 
counties, towns, and cities receive the other half. How much of that half they receive is calculated by how impacted their community is by the opioid and overdose epidemic. The more a community has been impacted, the more money they are set to receive. Hunsinger mentioned that this number is set by the Drug Enforcement Agency. Hunsinger explained that the settlement has rules about how the money can be spent. 30% can be used any way they see fit, but 70% must go towards specified programs and initiatives outlined in Exhibit E. You know, currently what we're talking about um, is the $507 million that will pay out over 18 years from largely the distributors. So that's um, Johnson & Johnson, Amerisource Bergen, uh, Janssen, uh, uh, McKesson, and Cardinal Health. Um, that is the, the first group of entities that have settled. And there is a, a group, a national group of attorney generals that, um, you know, have led the negotiations with these entities. Um, and then later on, I'll talk about some additional um, settlements that are out there that are in progress. Um, and, and then let's not forget about Purdue Pharma, which really sparked all of this, which is now in bankruptcy. So um, that, that $507 million is really what set um, the rest of this um, work uh, in, in, you know, into play. And so Indiana chose to opt in. Um, we took the route in which the legislature, um, through House Enrolled Act 1193, in the last, uh, or I guess in the 2022 session, it, what it does is it creates that 50-50 state and local split. And it also defines the intensity metrics uh, for how much um, each locality will see, receive. And that's based on overdoses, overdose deaths, and then also um, the morphine milligram equivalents that were shipped into a community, um, uh, and that's a DEA metric. And, and then there's some population stats and, and different things that, that help finalize those numbers. Hunsinger also said that there is a minimum cap on funding. If a city or town is not going to receive that much, then they won't receive the funds. Instead, the county will receive the funding to ensure that the money will be significant enough to be able to make an impact. The 50-50 local split is then further divided, uh, and, and in this settlement, it's clearly outlined that there is a 30% of the 100% that I'm talking about. So of that $507 million, 30% is um, unrestricted or considered reimbursement for costs that communities um, or the state has already outlaid um, to combat, because again, this is a settlement for action that were, that were taken by these companies. And then the other 70% of that $507 million is restricted. And there is an Exhibit E that is part of the settlement that outlines the uses of those, those funds. And Exhibit E is about um, 13 pages, um, and it's really focused on a public health strategy and really focused on you know, treatment, prevention, recovery. Uh, and, and then there's some um, data collection and, um, and, and training. Um, components as well. And uh, and a lot of these documents that I'm referencing uh, can all be found on our website at www.in.gov backslash recovery backslash settlement. He then explained how the state is planning to use their 50% of their funds. 
He said that they are using $25 million for a matching grant which communities can apply for to receive additional funding to support their efforts. And so for the state's plan, you know, we, we developed, first and foremost, we developed a $25 million matching program. What we heard from the local units of government is that they wanted help in collaborating and working across, uh, working within the county to, um, to, to create solutions, but then also working across county lines in a regional basis. Um, and then we've also dedicated areas and, and funding for, for treatment, um, and, and we're looking at building out adolescent uh, residential infrastructure, which is uh, lacking uh, in the state, uh, prevention and harm reduction, um, you know, investing in the justice system and looking at the sequential intercept model and how the development of um, Indiana's crisis system and 988 uh, plays into um, how we can divert individuals, especially you know those with mental health crises and substance use disorder from the justice system. And then we're going to focus on our workforce because as we continue to grow our programming, uh, we are woefully short of, um, of clinicians and um, at every level to um, provide that support. So we need to continue to grow our workforce. Um, and so that's, that's the state plan. Um, that's a $52 million plan, which is based on the 2022 uh, and 2023 allocation. He also added that there will be additional settlements in the future that will be added to the funds available. There were um, some additional settlements out there and the retailers uh, are in negotiations to, to settle. And um, that's for Indiana, that's gonna be about $404 million. Uh, that will again be divided 50-50 between the state and the local units of government. And um, that will pay out between um, one and um, and 15 years. And so the, that will again bring um, some additional sustainability. The current pay schedule is, uh, is front loaded um, in about six years and then those payments decrease um, over the, uh, the, the next eight years. Um, and so this will this will bring additional dollars, help um, create uh, a more level uh, payment schedule for uh, both the state and um, locals uh, as we move forward. And then there's also the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy, which is still lingering um, in the the bankruptcy court, and um, there there isn't a schedule at this point for um, when that will settle and when um, communities will begin to see funding from from Purdue Pharma. As executive director for the Next Level program, Hunsinger oversees Indiana cities, towns, and counties distribution. He said that everyone has a unique approach to addressing the opioid crisis because they all have different needs. I think if you look across the state, the, um, the resources of, um, of our communities, of our counties, of our regions across the state, the infrastructure in those areas looks very different. And, and how they sometimes interrelate to a, a main hub is very different. You know, the, uh, the way in which the counties around uh, Allen County, uh, you know, in Fort Wayne interact um, is much different than, um, than how um, Lake or St. Joe uh, interacts with the counties that surround it. And so, um, so you have to take that into account. Also, some communities have been working in this space for many years, uh, the decades. Others uh, are really new to bringing people together uh, and, and having some of these difficult conversations and, and you know, and, uh, looking at where their gaps are. 
and you have to take that into account. So when you when you ask、um, where is money best spent, I would say all of the above, and it really depends on where your community is at, what your challenges are, and and that's again goes back to our approach. We we take a very tailored approach because the the solutions and、um, You know, for Bloomington,、um, are going to look different than those in, in Fort Wayne or,、uh, or or even Muncie. And so, it, it, for for us, it's how can we help communities、um, best use their dollars in evidence supported ways that are filling the gaps and building on the infrastructure that they have. Not every community has to have all the parts and pieces,、um, but we have to have a plan to utilize. Uh, the parts and pieces that may be in in other communities, and and we'll need transportation, you know, to help people get there. So、um, it, it really is、uh, a a a one on one approach that we have to take in in solving that. And that's not just at the local level, but that's with individuals too.、Uh, substance use disorder、um, is a, is a disease of an individual,、uh, and and we have to take a tailored approach to solve it. It really depends on what you're looking to do、um, and how you interpret Exhibit E.、Uh, we've helped communities all across the state、um, in interpreting、um, Exhibit E. I I,、uh, I I sit in a number of meetings with、uh, my counterparts across the country who、um, who are all going through this in their own states,、um, and everyone、um, everyone has a, a general understanding of what Exhibit E. But I think in、um, in every state, Exhibit E is interpreted. Slightly differently,、uh, based on you know their you know their needs, based on、uh, what the issues look like in their state, and and also you know how they're structured as well,、um, all plays into that. So while I, I think all in all,、uh, everyone is is committed to、um, the spirit of Exhibit E.、Um, I, I think there's some some minor. Uh, deviations. I think what you projects you might find allowable in one state may not be allowable in another, and and I I, I I don't necessarily think that's a that's a bad thing. Hunsinger said that Indiana is trying to provide structure and support for to the local government entities who are able to implement their programs to meet their unique needs. There is only so much that we can do at at the state level. We can help provide funding. We can help、uh, create.、Um, Policies that、um, that help communities,、um, but but when it comes to how are we going to help someone who is exiting a jail、um, re-enter the community and and,、um, and and move forward in their recovery, or, or how are you know are we going to connect an individual、um, who leaves the emergency department、um, to treatment?、Uh, those are all. Um, things that、um, require people on the boots on the ground to to do, and so while we can、um, create the infrastructure and、um, and and provide the funding for those activities,、um, that collaboration, that cooperation,、um, is is best done at the local level, and it requires、um, it, you know not just our it's not just our healthcare sector. Um, but also, you know, the, the justice system and our,、um, our many of our nonprofits are engaged in this area. And,、um, where we see、um, collaboration and cooperation is where we are beginning to see the best results. 
we have communities all across the state who've come together uh, through various different coalitions. Leadership uh, of these coalitions has come from many different um, places. You know, sometimes it's a it's a concerned citizen or a businessman. Sometimes it's a county council person or head of the United Way. And, um, it looks differently uh, in in every community, but um, ultimately they're really driving at the at, at the same outcomes, and they're going through a very similar process. So how can they uh, bring together the stakeholders uh, help foster that sense of cooperation and then begin to map uh, the gaps in a community and and looking at how someone you know moves through the system and where are areas in which we lose people and how can we ensure that we're uh, you know in the event that we have gaps how are we bridging those how are we helping you know ensure that individuals have transportation to treatment or um, or have child care uh, when when they're trying to um, you know enter a treatment facility. So um, these are all you know strategies that uh, the communities have employed um, to, to really uh, make some incredible process in this area. Unsinger shared that he is concerned that there might be too much bureaucracy around the di- distribution of money, and he wants to ensure that the process is as transparent to the public as possible. I think one of the things that concerns me uh, in the implementation of these dollars from from a national level uh, is that in many states, what you see is the siloing of these dollars. Uh, Very large uh, advisory boards have been um, put together uh, to to consult, um, to create further guidelines um, from Exhibit E, to put additional restrictions and reporting requirements. Um, on Exhibit E, and I think as we um, look, those organizations, and in some states, uh, new and separate state agencies uh, have been created where they're not connected to their Department of Health or to their um, mental health and, and addiction agency. They're, they, they're, those agencies, in some cases, aren't even at the table. Uh, individuals who are looking at distributing these dollars maybe don't have an um, extensive grant experience. You know, they some of them were the lawyers who worked on um, on their state's process uh, in um, settling these dollars. And so, um, I, I am concerned that we that we're creating additional bureaucracy around these dollars. That we're um, that we'll see some of them be wasted in the administration. Uh, mm-hmm. But but also, I think what's really important, that, you know, in Indiana. Uh, the legislature requires uh, local units of government to report the use of these dollars uh, to the Family and Social Services Administration. And um, and there's also reports that will be required back to the settlement administrators. Uh, so we're, we're currently working on um, what those reports will look like, how they will be um, accessible to um, to you know uh, the public, because I, I also think that's very important that the public be able to um, view and understand how their community is spending these dollars. Um, this is you know this is an issue that has affected um, nearly everyone, uh, not just in our state and our country, but um, I think it's important that um, that we have that same access to how communities are being spent. And if uh, if individuals don't like how their communities are are spending those dollars, uh, I think it is um, 
it is expected um, that there be transparencies. He did say that over time, the funding will become more routine and they will have a good setup for programming. And if things are not working, then they will be able to make changes. I think as we look at the you know, kind of future of these dollars, too, I think we'll see some stabilization of communities and especially our local elected leadership who are charged with administering their dollars. Uh, they're going to start what they're going to have to report and they're going to start looking at these reports. And I think they're going to start asking questions um, if if they're not seeing a change in their community, they're going to start asking questions. And um, I, I know many communities are already, you know, asking a lot of these questions. How do we ensure that when we spend these dollars, we get results? And I think um, I, I, I think that will uh, com- communities will have that feedback and that ability uh, to be able to um, to kind of understand uh, what they're getting um, for the funds that, that are being spent. Hunsinger admitted that things are not completely set in stone, and they are establishing and modifying how they will use settlement funds as they go. The legislature is already looking to make some modifications, uh, minor modifications, but again, modifications um, in the in this year's budget. Um, so, again, everything is sort of um, we're we're I hate to say we're 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 building the airplane while we're flying it, but I mean that that does sort of equate a little bit to the, to the work we're doing. And we're, as we learn things, we, we try to, we try to react and we try to pivot to, you know, best meet the, meet the needs that, um, that we have. Mm-hmm. And also the, you know, the epidemic is changing as well. I mean, you know, when I started this work, we were, we were talking about overprescribing. Then it was, it was heroin. Um, and now it's, uh, it's fentanyl. 85% of overdose deaths involve fentanyl. So it's, um, it, we're, we're constantly trying to react to an evolving environment uh, so that we can best meet the needs of, of all Hoosiers. We will continue to dig into the opioid epidemic and the National Opioid Settlement next Wednesday on Deep Dive. Stay tuned. For WFHB, I'm Jean Herr. Up next, Rent Me a Car, Baby, on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn to your host and producer, Richard Fish, for more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Last time, we talked about staying digitally safe when you're traveling. Well, here's another data danger to watch out for anytime you're planning to rent a car. Now, I like driving, and even if I'm going all the way to the East Coast, I'll usually take the highways. But it's three or four days to the West Coast, so I will fly there and rent some wheels. And it doesn't have to be a trip. Your insurance company might rent you a car while yours is being repaired right here at home. There are some rental car scams, which we'll get to in a moment, but here's a heads up. 
When you get into that rental car, you can use Bluetooth or a charging cable to sync your phone to the car's electronics. That's called pairing it with the car. That lets you play music, get directions, and take calls hands-free. But when you do that, the data on your phone including your contacts, locations, text messages, music subscriptions, and social media, are downloaded to the car's computer. Yikes! Before you return the car, you need to disable that pairing and, if possible, do a reset on the car's system, or all that info will be available to the next person who sits in the driver's seat. Rental cars can be kind of hard to find right now. Companies sold off a lot of cars during the pandemic when demand went down the chutes. That often means pricing is premium. Scammers have jumped on this opportunity, creating fake websites and entire phony companies using sophisticated SEO, search engine optimization techniques, to make them come up prominently in web searches. Of course, they'll have just the car you want, and sometimes will offer you a fabulous discount if you pay them with a gift card or debit card. If you fall for one of these, your money will fly away faster than you do, and you'll end up walking when you reach your destination. If you do need to rent a car, deal with established national companies, typing their name in yourself to find their website, or else do some research on any company you haven't heard of. Searching for the company name plus the word complaints is always worth doing. Pay for any rental car using a credit card. If they won't take credit cards, take yourself elsewhere. Check to make sure your credit card offers insurance for rental cars. Most of them do, and don't pay extra for it. And always read the fine print, even if they've stapled the pages together to make it more difficult. You might find, for instance, that their unlimited mileage doesn't apply if you cross a state line. Or you might run across hidden extra charges. Happy motoring back on a freeway, which is already in progress. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com.